Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 12th, 2015, and this is episode 1623 of the Survival Podcast. Yeah, I did have to refer to my notes. Sometimes I can't remember what day it is, let alone what episode it is, but it's 1623, and we're going to talk about cooking deer meat. Yeah, all the whole show is going to be about cooking deer meat. Now, let's say you don't hunt and you don't have access to deer meat. Listen anyway. Everything I talk about can be done with <clears throat> things like lamb or even beef, or pork, or some things with other dark rich meats, like let's say duck or goose, a lot of this stuff you can obviously buy in the store. I'm going to give away four sausage recipes today, really a bonus five, because I've modified one. Three are my original recipes, and I'll tell you what, they've never been publicly released before, ever. I have never given away the methods behind these three types of sausage, and uh, I'm going to do that to 100,000 people today. We'll see if anybody cares, but these have been closely guarded secrets. Uh, one of these methods of sausage making is actually something that I've been doing for 23 years. I made my first batch of this sausage, modifying a local butcher's version. Uh, it's a very simple recipe, and I made my first batch of it when I was 13 years old out of deer meat. And it is also awesome, just done with pork, or again, you can cut in other things. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. I'm going to tell you how to cook deer on the stove, on the grill, make it for breakfast. I'm going to tell you all kinds of great stuff today. And again, lamb is one of the best store-bought analogs to venison. Lamb will work beautifully as venison in every single thing I'm going to talk about to you today. Uh, cut for cut, by the way. If you get the same cut off the lamb and do the same thing with it, you'll be very happy where you end up. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors before they before we... Uh, blah, blah, well... Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you Monday through from... Wow. And I'm not going to edit this. Even I screw up. I don't edit this stuff out, guys. Usually, uh, usually I just blow through this. How many times have I done this? They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company 
when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Now, if I can get my uh, tongue out of my, I guess my ear, I must have it in there or something. Uh, let's go ahead and see if I can take care of the uh, TSP Wiki history segment of the day for the episode, the year being 1623. So we're looking at the year 1623. Um, the runaway bride or groom, a breach of promise becomes law. We also have all the world is a stage, so be sure to wear pants, along with New Amsterdam for a new world. I'm going to read All the World's a Stage, so be sure to wear pants, not because of my take being something really ironic or really amazing from the past to today, but because my take is based on pop culture. Yeah, pop culture movies in the here and now. Well, uh, about 15 years old, I guess, at this point. Maybe a little older. I don't know. We'll find out. Let's read what Alex Shrugged has for us teed up for the year 1623. Pants were not really known as pants until now. They were called pantaloons, and they were usually worn in stage productions for comedic effect. They are named after a standard stage character called Pantalone, who always wears baggy legwear. He is awfully over-concerned about his daughter's virtue and protecting his investment, so he is a constant butt of jokes for the stage. Pants themselves are made popular by Shakespeare's play As You Like It, which has been published in booklet form this year. Shakespeare died a few years ago, but his influence will continue into the modern day. My take by Alex Shrugged. In the modern day, similar standard characters are used in visual media to clue people into elements of the story without having to hold up a sign reading, I'm the villain or I'm the buffoon. Painted ladies actually wear a lot of makeup and are obvious vamps. People with subtle vices tend to smoke cigarettes, while elderly men who smoke cigars have lots of money. Crooks look visibly unkempt. Even bad people in three-piece suits look bad when they move their eyes back and forth and they tell a lie or stare coldly as they contemplate evil. Subtle visual messages are placed in advertising, especially political advertising, to send an unspoken message to the viewer. A neutral message of good will, at Christmas time, might send a message, I'm a good Christian, depending on how the background images are arranged. Even the movie The Matrix, 1999, contains a classic bit of religious staging, As Trinity and Cypher stand by Neo's door, the characters talk about whether or not Neo is the one. <clears throat> if you look carefully, the lines of the door make an obvious cross as if equating Neo with a certain religious savior. The movie couldn't come straight out and make the connection, so they did it subtly. Um, I have a bunch of different things that come to mind when I read this. So a political ad. Uh, in the last presidential election, 
while the primaries were still going on, one of the people vying for the Republican nomination was a gentleman named Mike Huckabee, also would like to be your president this time around, has the same snowball's chance in hell uh, as he did the first time around, but you know he was he was vying and he's vying now. He did a Christmas ad where he was sitting in front of a bookcase just wishing everybody a Merry Christmas. And the bookcase had lighting on it that really highlighted kind of where the things came together. It made like this cross as they panned the camera that kind of went behind him. And he actually took criticism for it. Um, I, I don't know why you would criticize Mike Huckabee, Huckabee for using religious symbolism. He's pretty upfront about his faith, probably more so than most political candidates. But uh, the media does what the media does. Um, another example that I can think of that was really one of the best pieces of cinematography that I've ever seen, ever seen, period, um, is in a movie called The Shawshank Redemption. And this is one of those scenes that once you know the cinematography is there, it's, it's actually a beautiful scene. And for those who haven't seen the movie, the movie's about prison life and a guy wrongfully accused, and eventually he escapes, and he's about to escape and there's a wall and there's a shadow coming down off the wall on about a 45 degree angle and when it when it starts out Andy, Andy Dufresne is the guy that escapes prison is sitting up against the wall and he looks all depressed and this guy that's been kind of a mentor to him uh, Red comes over and Red's kind of beat down by the system he doesn't think he's ever getting out he thinks he's spending the rest of his life in prison and in short order they end up s switching places And Red is sitting up against the wall now, and, or standing with his back to the wall now, and Andy is standing facing Red. And the shadow lands straight at Andy's feet, and he's completely out of the shadow, even though they're making you think at this point in the movie that he might kill himself, because he's asked for some materials that people think maybe are for hanging himself when it's really to get away. And then Red is standing in the shadow, and the shadow just, just is above his head. If he took one more step, he'd have sunlight on his forehead, but he's still in the shadow. Well, eventually, Red's going to get out of prison. He doesn't know, but it's actually going to be very, very soon. Andy has tried to teach his fellow prisoners the entire time, you're only truly imprisoned if you choose to be imprisoned, that you can be free in your heart and your mind and your spirit. So that symbolizes two things, him standing out in the light. Part of that is, you know what? I was never really in prison, but the other part is he's about to... He's about to be gone. He's already got everything in place for his escape. His escape is almost predetermined at this point, and his life's going to be really awesome after it. Just leave it there. Red doesn't know it, but he's about to emerge. And that's that symbolism there. I thought it was really cool. And then, one more little bit of symbol in, yep, uh, pop culture icons, The Simpsons. You know the shifty eyes thing that Alex Shrug talked about? There's quite a few episodes of The Symptoms where Homer says, you know, like it's like ideas for like a, a TV show or something. He says, the dog can be the villain. People will know by his eyes. And they show a dog with his eyes shifting back and forth. So this is well known and ingrained in a lot of different things in pop culture. So not a big historical thing today, just some common observations. With that, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you love my show. Remember, I'm going to give away some really long-term recipes for sausage no one else has ever seen today. That's just one of the kind of things I do to help out this audience. So consider supporting my show. I guess I'll just take a shameless plug today, which I usually don't for the MSB. But there's there's one for you right there. These recipes I'm going to give you today, which are going to be available as a PDF download, by the way, uh, are probably worth at least a quarter of the MSB. Come on. One, we have three months uh, membership. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the, uh, the main topic of today's show. And if you do want to join the MSB, go to the Survival Podcast. Dot com. Click on members for more. Uh, 
yeah, I'm off time today. Maybe it's because I ate such good food today. Let, let's start out with something before I get into to uh, to cooking uh, and some basic rules about cooking. Just an in general thought here before we get into this show. I, this show is about cooking deer, yes, because I get a lot of questions about that. People get deer meat and look at it and go, it's something unusual. My recommendation, this is why I love Keith Snow. I love having him as an expert council member. I love having him as a sponsor. I love having him as a friend. I love having him as a show guest. He teaches this theory. Learn techniques for cooking, and then people can put any ingredients in front of you, and you can make something amazing out of it. Relax, I guess, is the biggest message here. Just relax. It's just food. We've been eating it forever, literally. If we don't eat it, we die. So as long as there's been people, there's been food and methods to gather and prepare and store and use food. So just relax. And I would like to give you an example, and maybe it's why I'm so tongue-tied today, because my mouth is still popping with flavor. What I had for breakfast today, that's an example of that. No, it wasn't deer meat. Um, I realized I need to eat before I start today's show. I got really late in the day before I got the show started today, because I was putting together the, this document with all of the recipes that I'm going to give you today. And if I didn't eat, I was going to be, you know, blood sugar crash by the time the show was over. And so I needed to make something to eat. So I go in the kitchen. I look through what's left over. Uh, there's a big block of uh, flank steak. You know, like you make fajitas out of that's that's in there that was cooked a couple nights ago. So I cut about half of it off and I cube that up into small cubes. And I start digging through the the vegetable drawer. There's a green pepper. Take a green pepper out, wash it. Cut one third, you know, one side of it off. So about a, a quarter of a green pepper. Cleaned it up, put it back in the refrigerator. It'll get used later. Found a zucchini, half a zucchini. Uh, cut the end off of that because it was looking a little ill for and, and diced that up. Um, went into my pantry, looked in there. What am I going to cook all this with? Ah, there's a bottle of olive basket, which is part of the MSB, right? You can get discounts on it. Infused oils. There's a couple different bottles in there. There's a chipotle, jalapeno chipotle infused oil. That would taste nice with this. Pull that out. Back into the refrigerator, look around. Garlic, you know, a little garlic and, uh, want to do some cheese? Don't feel like grating it? Nah, there's some pre-sliced Gouda. That doesn't really go, but it's mild, so it'll work. And some paste picante sauce. Heat up the skillet, drizzle it with the olive oil, low heat. If you're going to cook with olive oil, keep the heat low. So get that going. In go the peppers. Peppers start to change color, get a little bit translucent soft. In goes the garlic at that point so we don't overcook and burn the garlic. In goes the steak to warm it through. We get the steak warmed up a little bit. In goes the uh, zucchini squash. And uh, then crack one duck egg on it and turn the heat way down now. So you take the time with the duck egg, scramble it through, mix it all up, and then take that one piece of uh, pre-sliced Gouda, tear it up in little pieces, put it all over the cover, kill the heat, put a lid on it, take my Gary uh, Collins uh, supplements for the morning, Go outside, change the water, come back in. There it is, all melted and delicious. That was awesome. Oh, the paste picante. I didn't mention the paste picante. Right as you're adding the garlic and the meat, you go ahead and just dump a, a blub of the paste picante sauce in there, or any hot sauce or pico de gallo or anything you want. It was fantastic. Now, will I make that exactly that way ever again? Don't know. Off the cuff. And if you give yourself permission, guys, to just do that with food, you'll discover all types of wonderful flavors. But I'm going to give you some rules that will help you have the confidence to cook that way. Is this a survival subject? I don't know, but it's definitely a lifestyle design subject. If you learn to be a fantastic cook, you'll spend a lot less money on food because you'll eat at home instead of out at restaurants when you're craving something. And it leads to 
storage methods, and it leads to lifestyle design. And again, I mean, I was in the military and spent six months in Honduras where we ate MREs every day for six months. We had real dinner, but we had MREs for breakfast and lunch every freaking, well, we had, I'm sorry, we had, for the first few months, we had breakfast and lunch MREs, and then we started having hot breakfast and hot dinner and lunch MRE every day. Six months of MREs for lunch. Twelve different MREs, and at the time, this is the 90s, uh, two of them were wholly inedible, so you're down to ten, and another two of them weren't very good, so now you're down to eight. You get creative, you learn to cook, and that is a big part of learning how to use all your preps and your long-term storage food. So I do say this is a survival topic. And if you're going to be out raising your own animals as a homesteader or gathering them as a hunter, you need to know what to do with this. So I guess it is a survival topic, but it's also a fun topic. And this shows a lot about lifestyle design. I want everybody to have an amazing life. I really do. And I don't mean like some Anthony Robbins inspirational hoopla. I want you to design your life your way so that all the preparedness, all of the insurances and assurances you put in place to protect yourself and to maintain and to get through hard times are not just for the the sole purpose of staying alive and being miserable, but so that you can have something that's worth defending, that's worth assuring, that's worth insuring, and you can pass that down to your kids. Families bond over cooking too, guys. Dad, you want to bond with your son? You know, you might have to unplug him from the phone for about a half an hour to get his head out of it first, get him talking about girls or something, but then take him in the kitchen and cook with him. It's transformative, I promise you. Anyway, so let's get into some basic rules of cooking so we can be fearless. Number one, don't boil stuff unless you're making stock or soup. Far too many people with marinades and 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 and, and you know seasonings and stuff. Way too much liquid. If you're going to do a marinade that's like a lot of liquid, like it's got to come out of that and, and, and get some time to drain and get sticky before it gets cooked. And sticky can be bad or good depending on how you're cooking. We won't get into that today. But just know if you're putting really wet meat on a grill or really wet meat worse into a frying pan or a wok or something, then you're going to get into a boiling thing and it's it's not good. So... And, and, you know, this is not in my list of rules, but if you can cook with gas, cook with gas, or wood fire, or anything other than electric, electric's last. Um, but you can, you can still cook great with electric heat. It's just my last choice. And when you're cooking with a lot of stuff with moisture, you're trying to boil off moisture and all, it's a lot harder to do with an electric uh, burner than with gas, because with gas I can crank the heat and, and get rid of some of that excess moisture drain some of it off, cook some of it off, and drop the heat, where with electric, I've got to remove the pan from the burner if I bring the heat up like that. And I'm a lot more likely to burn and scorch. I have less control. Um, Understand, you can always cook meat longer. You can never uncook it. And that applies to vegetables, too. Shorten your cooking times with things that, unless you're doing like slow roasted, braised, stuff like that. When you're cooking food to, to on the grill, Get it off the grill a little sooner than you think you need to. If it ends up being too red, keep notes. Realize how long you cooked it for how thick it was, what the temperature was. You can put it back on and give it a little bit more and try it again until you get it just right. Once it's overcooked and dried out, there's no going back. So that's that's another thing. Let meat warm up before you put it on a grill or in a hot pan. Do not take meat straight out of the refrigerator or freezer and stick it on a grill or a hot pan. You get sticking, you get uneven cooking. You, you want to give meat at least a half hour, if not an hour, to come up to room temperature. And that will make things a lot better. 
Um, also, excessive rubs. Like if you have way too much of a rub seasoning on something, it's going to go into onto a, a grill or into a pan. Burns, and it also gets sticky and, and, and kind of gooped up. So if you're going to do a rub on your meat, you want it to either be light or you really want to give it a long time to really soak into the meat and then kind of pat it dry. Uh, another thing I realized it's not in my... And, and again, the, the liquids too, the liquid marinades and all, when you put like a really heavy liquid marinade on, you know, on meat and then put it into a frying pan or whatever, you get sticky, gooey, especially anything with sugars in it. Sugar's great because it caramelizes, but we want to use very small amounts of it. If we want to do something with more of a, a wet sauce or wet marinade, we want to add that toward the end and, and where the meat's pretty much cooked and we're just glazing it. And those, those things will save you a lot of grief. And another thing is, This is more for meat that you buy, because usually if you're, you're cooking meat that you've butchered, well, I guess this could work too. If you've used a Ziploc bag or a, a vacuum seal bag uh, and you've taken it out of the freezer, put it in the refrigerator, defrost, get your meat out of plastic if it's in the refrigerator as soon as possible. This includes you go out, you buy a, a nice ribeye, a couple of ribeye steaks you're going to cook on Friday. It's Wednesday. You, and you don't want to freeze them? I don't blame you. The, the less you freeze meat, the better, if you can. Um, you come home, and you take that, you know, that package from the butcher that's wrapped in paper, and you throw it in the, in the refrigerator like that for two days. It's not awful, but it's not good. But what's really bad is when you buy it, and it's in that you know, plastic-wrapped styrofoam with a diaper thing on the back of it, and you stick that in there, and you, you, you don't decide not to do it Friday, and you wait till Saturday, and you take it out, and it's still before the sell date or whatever, but you open it up, and the meat kind of feels sticky and has a little bit of a bad smell to it, not good. Not good. Get the freaking steaks out of the freaking plastic, and this is for most meats. Put it on paper toweling on a plate and set it in the refrigerator, and maybe 12 hours later, take it out, Take the meat off the paper towel, throw it away, put a new piece down, and flip it over. And when your steak gets that dark kind of red that you're worried about, a little bit of hard crustiness on the top, yeah, take the paper towel away again, and then thank the meat gods that your steak is turning into something wonderful. Flip it over and let the other side do it. This is basically dry aging at home. You'll never do it to the, the perfect way that it's done, you know, by, by like Morton Steakhouse or something, but it will so improve the quality, the tenderness, and the way that your meat cooks. When you take soggy meat and put it on the grill, you get gray steak. Okay? When you do what I just said and you put meat and you let it come up the temperature and you put that on the grill, you get those beautiful sear marks. You get that crustiness. Some, there, you know, even though they say there's no sugar in meat, there are some sugars in all flesh because you have some blood in there. And that blood, even no matter what you do to dry age it, there's some blood in there. Okay? And you know that when you cook it really rare and you cut it open and bread comes out, right? Okay. Blood is carrying all the things that an animal needs to be alive, like oxygen and nutrients and glucose. And that little tiny bit, as it comes out in the juices of the meat, that's what gets that brown, not the black, that brown caramel-looking color. That only comes from sugars. Okay? Trust me, on those things alone, your cooking will improve a thousand percent. All right? Okay, now, 
What I want to get into first is my sausage recipes. Now, I'm not going to give out 100% of the recipes on the air because I have all this in a document and you'll never remember it anyway. I'm going to talk a little bit about each one, what makes them cool, and tell you the basics of what's in them and how to make them and why you do what you do the way you do. The first one is deer andouille sausage. Okay, Andouille sausage is like a Cajun Louisiana sausage. I'd love to do a deer boudin someday. I've never done a deer boudin yet. I could come up with an idea for one, but until I try something, I don't generally give it away as a recipe and have you spend your time and money on it if I'm not sure. I have never seen anybody put out a really good, authentic, and Dewey sausage recipe that includes venison. And I've never seen anybody do it, especially with deer meat, the way that you need to do it if you want it to look like something, you go to a really nice butcher shop and buy some good custom-made andouille sausage. Most sausage, you just grind the meat. Okay? Like kielbasas, andouilles, smoked sausages, where when you cut it and you see the beautiful fat and then pieces of meat and then ground meat, what you need to make that happen is a combination of ground meat and a combination of cubed meat. And that's what I do with the andouille sausage. Um, and again, in each of these, I'm going to give you these recipes. They're for five pounds. You can adjust up or down. I like five-pound increments. You make five pounds, you make ten pounds, you just double it to make ten, right? You know, twenty percent of everything, and you've got one-pound recipes. It's 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 pretty simple to to add to because if you wanted to do three pounds, you just take twenty percent and then multiply that by three, right? Okay, so. A good rule of thumb is a minimum 20% fatty pork in your, your deer sausages. This one uses more, and some of my other ones use more, but that's kind of a minimum threshold, 20%. So if you're going to do 20% of the total, okay? So some would take that as 5 pounds, okay? And then 20% of that is 1 pound. So now we have 6 pounds, and it's pork. Well, that's not 20%. If we want five pounds, 20% of five is one. So four pounds of venison to one pound of pork. That's a minimum for my sausages. Again, some of these use more, considerably more. And again, we can substitute lamb, mutton, which is sheep. Which the Sheep, a lot of people wonder what to do with you know, lambs. Got all this wonderful tender. And a mutton is just basically an old lamb. It's an old sheep, either a ram or a ewe. And a lot of times you can get those as meat animals really cheap. Because the animal's kind of been bred out, the, the owner's trying to get rid of it, and it's, it's you know, mutton. Well, grind that sucker up, and you've got a great analog to deer meat. Another thing that works in all these sausages is just go all pork. Every single one of them will be great all pork. And then the last one is, especially you guys that are like big-time waterfowl hunters, some of you guys that have places where you can shoot six geese a day, and you just breast out the geese, I take the legs and thighs, substitute the venison portion for deer, I mean, I'm sorry, venison portion for goose or duck. You can always cut in maybe 10 to 20% of the total weight, I would say 10% of the total weight for these, in liver, including the deer liver or other livers, uh, or heart, or both, but I like hearts separately, we'll get to that today too. So the andouille sausage is two pounds of ground deer meat, okay? One pound of deer meat diced into quarter-inch cubes. This is why you might not find yourself making hundreds of pounds of this. That takes a lot of work to dice into those quarter-inch cubes. And you want quarter-inch. They're pretty small. Um, one pound of fatty pork chopped into quarter-inch cubes. And one pound of fatty pork ground. And pork butt roast is what I usually use for this. Um, 
one, and then I'm just going to read you the rest of the, the ingredients. You can get the amounts from the recipe sheet. Uh, it also includes cayenne pepper, paprika, fresh garlic, not powder, fresh garlic in this. Um, ground, coarse ground black pepper. For the amounts you usually use in the sausage, it's really very convenient. Dump whole black peppercorns into a coffee grinder, little little bitty electric coffee grinder. Like you grind, you know, uh, enough to make an espresso shot with. They make them tabletop models. I'll leave it at that. And that's great for a lot of your spice spices and, and things like that. Uh, so, um, again, coarse ground black pepper, salt. I always want Himalayan and or you know pink salt or kosher or sea salt. I don't like to use uh, you know Morton's table salt. One tablespoon of crushed red pepper. One tablespoon. I'm not, I'm not even supposed to read any amounts. I'm sorry. Fresh, uh, but you're also going to have fresh thyme, um, filet powder, which is sassafras powder, and it's used in gumbos. That's one of my little secrets for this. Uh, some chili powder, some cumin, and then. Uh, some Tender Quick, which is a Morton's product. It's basically salt with a little bit of sodium nitrate, nitrite, one or the other, curing salt, basically. And it's just one teaspoon of this stuff to five pounds. And it's optional. And it depends on what you're going to do with it next, I guess. But in this case, I for the andouille, if you really want it to come out looking, smelling, and acting like what you think of with andouille with that nice red smoked character... Use the tender quick in this one, okay? All right, so you mix all of the ingredients together. You put that in a bowl and throw it in the refrigerator for a day, 24 hours. And then you, you get your casings and a sausage stuffer, and you stuff this into your casings. You can just smoke this like on the you know like indirect heat on a grill or use a side box smoker or anything like that until it's, it's cooked. If you want... To really do this right, what you want to do is cold smoke this for eight hours. Cold smoke for eight hours. At least six. So six to eight hours of cold smoking. It will not be cooked because this is a cold smoke. After that, you can either you know smoke it at around 200 degrees for an hour to an hour and a half until it's cooked through or mostly cooked through. And then you can... You can just put it in the, ref uh, the refrigerator and use it right away, or you can freeze it for long term. Um, or you can just go ahead and smoke it that way. The other stuff that I'm going to give you, the other sausage recipes, don't really need to be smoked. For this to be like andouille, you need to smoke it. You really do. Little words of advice on the cayenne pepper. You can always cut the amount in half, okay, so that it's not too hot. Um, but the amount I use doesn't really make it blazing hot. It's, there's a bite to it. Same with the red pepper. You could cut that in half if you want to. Um, you could always make this, and if it's not hot enough, make it again. But if you make it and it's too hot for you, you may find yourself not wanting to use it. So if you're at all questionable about the heat, cut back the, 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 the two things, the cayenne and the crushed red pepper, you know, in half. But if you omit them in this, it's not going to taste like andouille. It's not going to have the character of Andouille, but this is awesome. Um, and this is one that you really want to, if you're going to make this, you really want to go ahead and case it and smoke it, at least you know, hot smoke it, one or the other. Um, it actually makes a pretty good sausage. If you use it as a fresh sausage and just grill it, um, or, and, and again, any of these ones that you're going to smoke, you can make them as a fresh sausage, you can freeze them, and you can always smoke them when you pull them out. So you don't have to smoke them before you put them away. 
But this one is the one that I, if I'm going to go through all the trouble to set up a cold smoker and make 10 pounds of this stuff, and I would go ahead and stuff and cold smoke sausage with this to, to really make it what it's supposed to be. If you try this, it will blow you away. It, it, and it's better made with deer meat than made with all pork. And you know, traditionally, this is a pork sausage. This is fantastic. Um, the exact recipe, again, is in a PDF you can download. I have never given away this recipe. I don't think I've ever given this recipe to anyone before. It's that good. Uh, and, and the reason I don't make it more than I do, I hate stuffing sausage. I absolutely detest the process of stuffing sausage. Um, maybe I'll get a better stuffer someday and I'll feel different about that. But dealing with the casings and all, I don't like to do it, but it's good stuff. Um, the next one is my dear jalapeno sausage. I've, I've told a lot of people individually this. I don't think I've ever put it out publicly before. Um, I'll give you just the basic recipe, and you can get all the individual ones. Uh, three and a half pounds of ground deer, one and a half pounds of ground fatty pork. That makes up five pounds. Two tables, uh, I'm just going to, sugar, salt, uh, ground pepper, paprika, allspice, nutmeg, dry milk powder, finely diced jalapenos, um, and then I'll give you the two optional ones in a second. On the jalapenos, If you want this really kind of some good bite and spice to it, just chop the jalapeno seeds and all. If you don't, seed them and then finely diced jalapenos. Either one will work really well for you. Um, but if you seed them, there will be very little heat to this sausage. Lots of jalapeno flavor, very little jalapeno heat. Um, by the time it's all been smoked and cooked and everything else. The next two ingredients are optional. And the first one I would call highly optional. And that is ground chipotle pepper. Now, chipotle is smoked jalapeno. But it has to be, for it to be a true chipotle, it has to be a jalapeno that's become red. And a lot of hot peppers, they get to red or whatever their final color stage is, they get hotter. Jalapenos pick up a lot of sweetness when they turn red, and their heat actually drops. But with all the seeds in there, it's still awful hot. The way they make these is they get these peppers to the red stage, They cut some slits in them so they'll dry out. And then they're smoked and dehydrated. So they're, they're almost leathery in feels. They're almost, they're not quite hard. They're like leathery. You can find them in a lot of specialty markets. To make jalapeno, uh, to chipotle powder out of them, you basically take the stem off the top, maybe cut them in two or three pieces or break them in two or three pieces, throw them in the coffee grinder and powder them in there. If you want to cut their heat a bit to get this flavor, but not put too much heat in the sausage. You can tear them open and remove all the seeds. But if you really want to cut the heat of a pepper, you want to remove the seeds and the pith, which is the white part. So if you want to do this really mild with jalapenos, take the seeds and the white part of the peppers out before you dice them. You can't really do that with a, with a chipotle. It's all kind of merged together at this point. So if you want to cut back the spice but still have the chipotle, um, Open the top and dump out all the seeds, and then grind what's left. You can always cut the amount that I recommend in half. Uh, when I make it, I make it with a tablespoon of chipotle powder, and I don't find it to be that hot at all. Some people tell me it's, it's pretty hot when I make it that way, though. Then the next optional ingredient is the tender quick, the Morton's tender quick curing salts. Only go ahead and use this if you're going to case and smoke the stuff. Okay, So with this one, you can stuff and cold smoke it. You can stuff and warm smoke it. You can just make a fresh sausage and grill it, and it's beautiful. 
Um, you can make a fresh sausage out of it, and you can sort of smoke it based on cooking it on charcoal with a little bit of you know, um, uh, wood chips or whatever, give it a subtle smoky flavor. You cannot even worry about casing this and cook it like a sausage patties or use it as a fresh ground sausage. And it's, it's good always. Uh, the next one, this is the one I've been making uh, for, for like 23 years. I made my first batch of this uh, when I was uh, 13 years old. And we were getting our sausage made at the time by a butcher named Snokey. And he told me a little bit of what was in his, and I thought I could do better. And I went out in the the, the shed where I did all my work with the deer meat. I broke out the old uh, cast iron grinder. I got went down to town and got a, a pound of uh, pork butt pre-ground by the butcher. I came home and I made this, and we never paid that man to make sausage again. Do not let the simplicity of what I'm about to tell you uh, take away from how awesome this is. It's four pounds ground deer meat. This is for a five-pound batch. And then one pound of fatty pork. I'm going to give you the amounts in this because it's so simple to do. And then three tablespoons each. Salt, coarse ground pepper, uh, dehydrated onions, and cracked coriander seed. So the peppercorns you can put in the coffee grinder and just pulse it until it's ground up enough. But you want to use fresh pepper because it's got so much more character to it than you know pre-ground pepper and the the coriander you want to do that till the seeds are just kind of cracked into one or like two or three pieces each you don't want powder with this and uh a quarter cup of fresh chopped garlic and then a half a cup of either beef or venison stock and that is for rehydrating your dehydrated onions don't use use definitely use the fresh garlic For this, do not use, I know it sounds crazy, do not use fresh onions. Use the dehydrated onions. There's a sweetness to them. So you take um, a half cup of beef stock or venison stock, and you just put your three tablespoons of dehydrated onions in there, mix them up, set them aside, then get everything mixed together, and then throw them in, kind of you know scrape out that, and that will all incorporate and pull that together. Mix that, and I didn't say on this, but on mixing any sausage, unless you have a mixer, and you have, if you have to do this by hand, When it starts to get kind of tacky, you start to get almost like a skin of fat coating your fingers, that's when it's mixed enough. When you can see all the seasonings mixed through, and if you're going to make 50 pounds, it will probably be easier if you're going to hand mix that much to mix about five pounds at a time than to try to mix 50 pounds in one go. Um, I can mix five pounds in five minutes. Um, take that by tenure at 50 minutes. If I'm trying to mix 50 pounds by hand, it feels like I'm there like an hour, hour and a half. Um, it just seems a lot longer, but consider a good mixer if you're going to make a lot of sausage. But I like to make sausage, you know, five to ten pounds at a time, and I, I don't have any problem doing that by hand. Um, you mix that, put it in a bowl, let it sit in the refrigerator for 24 hours. The same thing. You can case it and smoke it. You can use this fresh. You can you can do anything you want with this. And it, you know, read the instructions for more on that. And then I have an Italian slash breakfast sausage. So we can make this as a breakfast sausage. We can case it and use it more like an Italian sausage, or we can Italian it up a little bit. This is based on Chef Keith's basic sausage recipe that he gave me. And here's the uh, basic recipe. is uh, This is back to a 20% ratio. Four pounds of ground deer meat, one pound of ground pork. And then it uses fennel, crushed red pepper, salt, black pepper, Chef Keith's Northern Italian seasoning, a quarter cup of fresh chopped garlic, 
a tablespoon of onion powder for this one, onion powder, um, and 20 uh, finely chopped fresh sage leaves. And that's my version of Keith's sausage. Uh, it's a little bit different, and you could admit that, uh, that red pepper if you don't like it. Okay? It tastes sort of like Italian sausage. It's sort of like Owen's Country Breakfast Sausage. It's kind of in the middle between those two. So one day I, I was making some of this, and I like to make this, I'll make this, you know, two, three pounds out of just ground pork from the store. This is so good. But you can, and you can adapt the recipe. It doesn't matter what meat you're using per pound or per five pounds, the, the, the amounts in my recipe stay constant. Okay? Um, but I thought one day, how can I make this more like real Italian sausage? Just can I Italian this up a little bit? And what I did to make that happen is took that basic recipe on five pounds and added a quarter cup of sugar for sweetness. You could probably use honey, too. Um, an additional tablespoon of fennel seed. So the original uses two tablespoons. This goes to three. So fennel really pulls that Italian flavor out. Uh, ten fresh basil leaves, fresh chopped basil leaves. Um, one uh, tablespoon of crushed, not ground, dried rosemary. So the dried rosemary, but the crushed stuff. And if you don't have it crushed, crush it yourself, but not ground. You don't want it like a powder. It's too much. Um, and if you want to be authentic and really Italian, then Italian sausages usually don't have sage. So omit the sage that's in the original recipe. But I like it with the sage. So those are my sausages. Um, a little clunky to deliver those to you on, on the air, but all of those recipes are there. And that Italian sausage, that's one I wouldn't smoke. Um, I'd either use it as a ground sausage product or I'd case it and use it as a fresh sausage product. It's, it's, it makes a good smoked sausage, but it's, it's so much better just like grilled uh, or browned in a pan and then chopped up and then done like with like a, a, a pasta sauce, like a tomato sauce. Fantastic. Sausage and peppers, sausage and potatoes and peppers. Ugh, wonderful. So those are my sausages. Again, for all the instructions on how to make them, download the PDF. And again, two of them have never been probably given out to anybody. And one has never been, you know, additional one's never been given out publicly. And the Keith Snow ones I've never really mentioned using them with deer. So these are closely held secret recipes. No joke, I'm not kidding here. Uh, I'm sharing that with you. And I had to think really hard, do I really want to give these away? And I decided to because you guys are awesome. So... Now, let's get into stuff that might be a little bit more exciting. Uh, the sausage will be exciting when you make it, but this, this will be exciting when you hear it. This is my warning. This is where you're going to start getting hungry if you haven't eaten yet. So, I'm going to start out with some of my blow-you-away methods of making gri uh, grilled meats, specifically deer meat in this, this situation. I don't have recipes for these. You'll have to listen and just make them because I don't use fixed amounts when I make these, really. Uh, the first one is a bacon-wrapped, crusted jalapeno deer loin. Yeah, I'm going to say that again. Bacon-wrapped, crusted jalapeno deer loin. Remember when we talked about cutting the deer up, and I said you have the, the back loin, not the tenderloin. We're going to get to the tenderloin in a second. But the back loin, the, the thing that makes chops or breakfast steaks, they called. And everybody bones that whole big, long, beautiful loin out, and then they cut them into one-inch pieces, for grilling, or they cut them into like half-inch pieces for like, uh, you roll them in flour and fry them like a uh, chicken fried steak. They're fantastic that way. Don't get me wrong. And I said, don't do that, right? I said, cut them about eight inches long, which is about enough for two people each to have a four-inch piece of loin, 
as long as you have sides and stuff, or maybe if you're going to eat mostly meat, you maybe make one of these just for yourself, one for your buddy, if you really like your buddy, and you leave it whole. This is one reason why you leave it whole, because you can't put it back together. This is utterly fantastic. It takes a little bit of knife skill. Lay the tenderloin flat to the ground, trim off any excess silver sheen or what have you like you would. Cut about, like you're going to cut it in half across it. Okay, so not down in half. So you, you lay it down like you're going to cut a bagel. You have your hand on the top and you put the, the blade in from the side and you start cutting into it. Cut just past halfway and open it up. Don't completely butterfly it, just, just past halfway and open it up. Cut a jalapeno or two into like halves or quarters, however, depending on how big your peppers are. So basically you want uh, two pieces of jalapeno side by side inside the deer tenderloin. Uh, small tenderloin and big pepper, you might use quarters. Big tenderloin and small jalapenos, you might use halves. Seeded and depulped, but basically you want two lines of pepper going from one end of the tenderloin to the other. Okay, Just leave it sit there. It's not going anywhere. You want some peanut oil? Take your fingers, dip it into the peanut oil in a like a bowl, and kind of rub the inside of that uh, tenderloin before you put the jalapenos in, then put those jalapenos in. Now, in a you know another bowl is a good idea to kind of mix this together. It's one part paprika and one part fresh ground black pepper to one half part salt. So if you did um, two teaspoons of paprika and two teaspoons of black pepper, you do one teaspoon of salt. That's your little rub mix. Okay, you want the pepper ground coarse, real like like maybe five pieces of pepper come off each corn. Again, use your coffee grinder for this, or your if you want to sit there and grind that much pepper, your pepper mill on the coarsest setting will will get you this. Sprinkle a little bit of that on the inside of your loin. Close it up. Rub the peanut oil on both sides and sprinkle a little bit on the outside of your loin. You can actually, the easy way to do this, make a coating of it on your cutting board and just roll the, the loin through it. You probably could do it before you cut it and get it really nice and stuck to it. Okay? Now, wrap the loin in bacon. Yes, wrap the loin in bacon. From one end to the other, like it's a bandaged limb. Use toothpicks to hold it in place. Coat it with the um, with the with the rub I just told you, the pepper, paprika, and salt, and set it in the refrigerator overnight. The next day, put this on a medium, a low to medium grill, so that the bacon slowly renders. And as by the time the bacon looks just about beautiful, the the loin will be red inside, just a little bit red at the middle, but it will be it will not cook all the way through. Do not cover this when you cook it. Cook this uncovered on a medium heat, slowly rendering the bacon, and the, the bacon is basically going to transfer the heat in and, and almost poach the um, beautiful loin. I'm getting really hungry here, even though I just ate, in its own juices. And one thing you may want to do, and I usually do this, is I use a little bit of salt with the on the venison 
when you're coating the, the bacon, you, you can make it just the paprika and black pepper. You can admit the salt, because the bacon's salty enough as it is. You can admit the salt from this all together. It's just a rub that I have. I have a jar. This is like a go-to for seasoning that's pepper, paprika, and salt that I always have available. So you can admit for the salt from this, but when you put the salt in with the meat, it, it really kind of helps the meat cook right, and it kind of marinates in that meat, kind of breaks the tissue down overnight. This you could make like right now. Like, you could go ahead and do it all up and throw it right in the grill. If you let it sit overnight, you can probably get away with not even having the toothpicks in it at all, and certainly not when you cook it. The way to get this done is to make sure that there's only one live end, so to speak, one running end of your bacon, and make sure it's on a flat part of your loin, either the bottom or the top, not an edge, and set it on a plate with that piece on the bottom. And leave it sit there overnight in the refrigerator. Make sure this meat is well drained before you do this. Take the meat out. Do the, the, the dry aging for a day on paper towel before you make this. So take two days to get it done. And you'll really end up with this nice, tacky, crusty, bacon, jalapeno. You will write me emails thanking me for the rest of your life every time you make this and you don't think I can do better, how about this? I call this, because I don't know what else to call it, Deer Tenderloin with Chang's Treatment, and I say it's from Neil Franklin, because that's who I learned it from, even though he named it from a guy named Stephen Chang, who's a Malaysian. Okay, This one, if you do it wrong, you can hurt yourself, so don't do it wrong. Um, you can either do this in the oven with the tenderloin, or you can do it on the grill. This is not the, this would actually work really good with the same piece of loin I just talked about, but it's made to do beef tenderloin. The way that Neil does it when he does a beef tenderloin, he takes a whole beef tenderloin or half a beef tenderloin, and this is what I'm going to tell you to do. Rub it with peanut oil, sprinkle it with salt and pepper. That's, that's the entire seasoning for it. Now he'll cook a whole beef tenderloin for about 20, 25 minutes at like 375 in a roasting rack in the oven. That gives you an idea of how rare this is served. You can cook it longer if you want to. Um, but that's how you do it with a, with a, a tenderloin and then everything, uh, a beef tenderloin, and then everything else I tell you is the same. I would not try to do this with a beef tenderloin on the grill. It's too big a piece of meat. That oven kind of gets that even heat through it. When you do it with a beef tenderloin, you then let it rest um, till it's about room temperature. And then when you slice it, even in letting it rest like that, it's going to bleed, and you drain the blood off and remove the blood before that you serve it. Then everything else is the same uh, going forward as I would uh, tell you how to do this with deer meat. For a deer tenderloin, you can do it in an oven, and I would say 10 minutes maximum at about 350. But you can do it on a grill and get that crusty, beautiful sear to it. You rub your loin or your tenderloin with peanut oil, salt and pepper, that is all. Get your grill really hot, whole loin or tenderloin on the grill, so it, when it hits, it should go, pssst, it should sizzle. And you're going to cook it for two to three minutes and turn it over. And this is where it's really beneficial when you're making something like this and you're going to cook it really rare, but you want it heat, heated through and you want that outside seared, have your grill planned out to where there's enough hot spots that when you turn it, you can put the piece of meat to a part of the grill that hasn't had anything on it yet. 
because it won't have, it won't have uh, equalized any kind of heat with the meat. The meat won't have taken any any heat out of the metal yet. So you you turn it to a new spot on the grill and sear the other side two to three minutes. That's it. Get it off. If you insist on doing it longer, fine. If your grill doesn't quite cook as well as mine, you might have to cook it longer. But when what you're looking for is when you cut this open, to at minimum, it's a deep pink. You really want a red here to do this right. Set it aside, and you're going to serve this room temperature, so you don't have to worry about it's going to get cold on you. Because it's so rare, you want to let it be. So seared both sides, almost like you're searing ahi tuna, if you're familiar with that. Now, here's the magic. And this is the part I said you can hurt yourself if you do it wrong. You take two pots, two small sauce pots, equal amounts. One has peanut oil. The other has light soy. You slice razor thin, as thin as you're capable of, white onion, as much as you'd like. I use about a half an onion to make this. And chili peppers. Again, thinly sliced. And in this case, since it's a, a, a sauce, so to speak, uh, a, a, an accompaniment, uh, you, I go ahead and leave the seeds and pith in, even for people that don't really like really, really hot. If you use red Fresno chilies, Fresno chilies look like a jalapeno with a point instead of a round end. You can find them in most supermarkets. They're not that spicy. Red jalapenos are good in here. If you want to put the spice up a little bit more, use a serrano pepper. I've never done this with something like a Scotch bonnet or something crazy like that, but a uh, habanero, I guess you could. Uh, you could also, if you wanted to, um, take a whole habanero with no holes in it and put it into the soy sauce in addition to these other chilies and remove it uh, after you do what I'm going to say next. So you've got your little saucepan not heated up. It's got the onions and peppers in it. Razor thin again. Really, really thin is what you want to do with this. And a red pepper just looks beautiful in the presentation. The white onion, the red pepper, the, the, the red meat. That's why this is so important to use the colored peppers if you can. Set that to the side. Take your equal amount of oil in another saucepan. Put it on the oven and bring it up to temperature hot to the point where it's almost starting, where it just starts to smoke. It's really hot. Kill the heat. Dump the oil into the soy sauce with the peppers and onions. Do not, do not, do not dump the soy sauce into the oil. Hold it high above, stand back, and dump it in. Like a, a, not, a, not a splash, but not a drizzle, a steady pour. Straight in, and it'll just... <laughs> you won't believe the sound, and the smell will be amazing. And let it sit wherever it is. If you're nervous about this, you can set the pot with the soy sauce in the sink. Obviously, when the two are combined, it should no more than half fill the pot that the soy sauce is sitting in. Okay? You don't want something that fills it to the top when you're doing this. This is kind of an advanced technique. I can't explain why it does what it does, but you cannot saute the onions and the and the um, uh, the, uh, the the chili peppers. Uh, let it cool down and then back the soy sauce into it or whatever and get the same result. It, it's this high temperature flash cooking combination soy sauce oil. This stuff's amazing. So now again, we take our loin and now that it's nice and rested about room temperature, when we feel the outside, it should feel warm but not hot. We slice it thinly. It's going to bleed and unless we've cooked it a little bit more than I think you should. So we're going to use paper toweling to take the blood away. We're going to serve that on a platter. 
and we're going to take a spoon and maybe take some tongs and put some of the peppers and onions on the meat. And then we're going to take a spoon with that oil and we're going to just drizzle that oil, almost like a drizzled frosting, on that meat. And again, we're going to serve this at room temperature. Not cold, but not hot. This is fantastic. This was, I, you know, had to pry this out of Neil how to make this. This is one of the best things you'll, and I've never seen anybody do this on TV. Um, this is amazing. And it, I, it's really good with the beef tenderloin. It really is. I've even done it with chicken. I've pan-seared chicken thighs and put this oil stuff on them, and it's fantastic. But it's just made to go with beef, and it's beautiful with venison as well. All right, um, next one. <clears throat> Deer leg steak with black pepper crusting. Now, I say leg steak just to be clear what I'm talking about here, but you can do this with any piece of meat. The the deer loin would work well with this. The deer tenderloin would work well with this. Um, the shoulders, like the upper shoulders, are too tough, but the lower shoulder, which would be your bicep, uh, cut into little steaks, you could do this with. But the back leg, if you debone that back leg, like I said in the other episode, and cut it into about one-inch steaks, and usually you get, I, I, I used to take a whole, like try to keep them whole, It's a big round steak, and I get kind of an oval-shaped long steak and then a little bit shorter of a rounded tip one, the two halves, and cut those into one-inch pieces. That's a beautiful steak. And if you don't want to get complicated, and yet you want kind of amazing taste with your steak, just be simple with this and use that thick cut, about an inch, three-quarters minimum on the thickness of this steak. And what we're going to do here is a black pepper crust on the steak. So we're going to take the steak and set it in the refrigerator at least overnight on paper towel. We're going to get it firmed up a little bit. It makes a lot of sense, like I said, to after it's been in there about half a day, take it out, take it off the paper towel, throw the paper towels away, flip it over, and... Set it on that paper towel again on the other side and let it start to get a little tacky. Start let it start to get a little darker red. Let it even if it's a little black on it. Don't be afraid of that. It's a good thing. It's lactic acid that's beginning to break down the muscle fibers. That's what's going on there. And then when we're ready to crust it, we're gonna rub it with some oil. I suggest peanut oil for this. Uh, you could also use maybe palm oil or coconut oil or Um, you, you could, if you're going to cook immediately, use melted lard as your oil. Um, but peanut oil works best for this. I know some people try to stay away from nut oils and vegetable oils. You're not using that much here. And you're going to cook this in a way that olive oil is not a good idea. You cook olive oil at too, too high a temperature, it gets rancid. Okay? So a little bit of oil. This is going to make everything stick. Uh, just as much salt as you like. Just a little liberal amount of salt. A little bit of garlic powder. Just a tiny bit, just, you know, so that it's got a little bit kind of, you know, 20% coating of, of garlic. Then we're going to take our, 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 uh, our, our black pepper, and again, we're going to use either the, the biggest setting on our, our hand crank grinder, or we're going to throw it in the coffee grinder, which makes a lot of sense because we're going to make quite a bit of this. We're going to lay it down like we're, almost like we're breading fish, okay? Like on a paper plate or a uh, cutting board, we're going to set this, like, out, and we're going to roll the meat in it till it's coated nicely. Imagine uh, a good soft pretzel the way that the big kosher salt's on there. A little bit more than that. Okay, We're going to take that and we're going to set that aside for like half an hour 
as it comes up to temperature. And then it's going to get tackier than it already is. And we're going to roll it through the pepper again one more time. We're going to take that out to the grill. We're going to have the grill at a medium-high temperature. We'll put that meat you know, down one side on the grill until it sears. We're going to flip it, and, we're going to, and, and that's it. And you're going to cook it to the doneness of your liking. But don't be afraid of rare venison. Don't be afraid of rare almost anything, but definitely don't be afraid of rare venison. If you cook it too much, it gets tough, it gets liver-like, it gets dry. If you have a piece of venison, it's not at least a little bit pink, unless you're making stew or something, you've overcooked it. It has to have at least a little bit of pink in it. And that thicker amount and that crust of the pepper and that cooking it relatively fast so it cooks from the outside in. Again, don't cover this. Don't cover this up. Just don't do it. I know you'll be tempted. If it takes a little longer to get cooked, that's fine. This is fantastic on a you know, gas grill, especially a good gas grill with good heat, but this is blow you away over charcoal or wood. This done over mesquite coals, not mesquite charcoal, but you, you get, you know, mesquite chunks of wood, and we start a fire and burn them down to hot coals and cook. Mesquite burns so hot. It's just beautiful for this. And what you want to do is make sure you spread your coals out enough that you have enough heat to sear that outside without cooking all the way through too quickly. And again, st- when you turn this, Risk the, you see people do it on TV all the time. They pick the meat up and they put it right back down where it was. Turn it over. So spread your meat out so there's room to turn your meat into a, a virgin part of the grill surface. So that that new spot gets just crusty and you want almost like seared branded little bits of black with the brown. Get it off. Let it rest before you cook it. That's how you make any steak with a black pepper crusting, really good. But venison, again, blow you away. People that say, I don't like venison, nobody's ever cooked it for you this way. I, I still struggle with my wife. She doesn't ever want to eat it. She doesn't ever want to try it. Because she ate it years ago from people that don't know how to cook it. You cook venison like this, it, it, it's going to be different than a piece of beef, but a lot of people would believe that it is, you know, maybe grass-fed if they've never had that or something. They're, they're not. It doesn't taste like... I hate to use the word, that gamey thing people say. Remember, gamey is not a flavor. Gamey is a catch-all phrase for someone screwed the meat up. Okay? So that's how you do a black pepper-crusted steak, deer or otherwise. Another great way to do deer is with what I call minute steaks. And this is really good with, you can do a like an Asian-themed marinade, which, you know, you do something like a little bit of water, a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of ginger, a little bit of chili pepper, a little bit of sugar, and a little bit of soy sauce. We mix that up into a, a marinade. And then we, and I'll tell you how to make the minute steaks here in a second, we dredge the meat in that marinade. And then we take it out of that marinade, And we give it some time to dry. So it's not soaking wet, right? So we get the flavor into the meat. And then we just grill it really, really fast. And since it's so thin, minute steaks, right? It takes about a minute to cook. These can be done on skewers, too. You can cut them more into small pieces and kind of put them through, like, you know, put your skewer through and then back through so that they're they're like a flat skewer. You can flip one side each and quick and done. And then what we'll do... So we had raw meat in there, in that marinade. We take that marinade, throw it in a little pot, 
and reduce it by about a third of what its volume was. So if it was a cup, we want to take it down to two-thirds of a cup. That'll thicken it and kind of make it nice for, for drizzling, okay? We'll take that minute steak, either it's just a big piece of meat uh, or in skewers or however we want to do it, hot grill, put it down. As soon as it's seared, I mean, it cooks almost instantly because it's thin. We flip it over and brush it with that marinade. Flip it over again, brush it, get it off. Fantastic. And you can do it like that. You can just do salt, pepper, garlic, and throw it on the grill and grill some, some peppers, okay, and then slice it up after you get it off the grill, mix it with the peppers, and make yourself a good old-fashioned Philly cheesesteak out of it. A little bit of uh, you know Parmesan or mozzarella cheese on it on a bun if you eat buns, and that's fantastic too. You can even do a little bit of tomato sauce. You can cook this any way you want. This is a fast way. You can put it. You can get a skillet and throw it in a skillet and cook it, and it will be tender because it's thin, and it will be tender because it cooks so fast. Just don't overcook this stuff. You're not going to get a really nice sear on this. You can't. It's too thin. How do you get the meat that thin? You take your bone deer leg, and again, this makes sense. Instead of trying to make the whole leg and make a big round one, you get two halves, the small half and the big half of the upper leg, the back ham, and you put that on a, a tray and you stick it in the freezer. And you don't want to freeze it through, but you want to freeze it when you pull it out, the outside's kind of frozen. It's really, really hard. And you take a meat slicer and you set it to whatever thickness you want and you slice it like you're doing cold cuts. Fan. Fantastic, guys. And it's so quick. And that's that's a nice thing to take some of, especially if you're in a state where you're allowed to shoot a lot of deer and you have a lot of meat. You take either your back legs or, again, that lower, everybody, you, you know, rips on the shoulder. That shoulder blade, I admit, it's, it's a tough piece of meat to work with. That lower shoulder, that bicep, you bone that, and that works beautiful, too. That, that really is great for minute steaks as well. In fact, that's one of the best uses for that piece of meat because a lot of times it either gets used as a whole roast um, or ground up. You try making minute steaks out of it, you won't be grinding that stuff up no more. And it will be tender. It will be absolutely beautifully tender. This is great for cooking in like hibachis, little portable grills, campfire cooking. I mean, because it cooks so fast. This is good with eggs. So you take that minute steak, you, you uh, get your skillet going, you throw some uh, you know peppers and, and, and whatever else you want. Peppers and tomatoes is great. Into your skillet, um, you, you, can, you can marinate that meat in something, a little bit of soy sauce or what have you, or you can just throw it straight in there, cook it, throw some eggs on it. You know, so you've got the minute steak, the minute deer steaks, you've got the eggs, you've got the, the tomato, you've got the green pepper, hit it with a little bit of uh, cheese, I'll throw it on a tortilla, call it a breakfast taco. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but, you know, minute steaks are very versatile and that quick cooking. Think any kind of oriental seasoning, spicing, grilling goes great with that. Again, but fast cooking, get it done, get it out. You can overcook the shit out of this. It's like cooking a very thin piece of lean beef. Same type of scenario. Fast, hot, done. Um, next one. How about the best deer burgers ever? Best deer burgers ever. You just you, you keep it simple. It's it's basically you follow a sausage recipe, but you, you, you use two ingredients in addition to meat. Salt and pepper. So you if you were going to make five pounds of burger meat to make burgers out of and, and freeze, which is a great way to do it, you make up five pounds, you get a burger press, and some um, wax paper, and you, you figure out how to measure out a quarter pound. So you're making quarter pound burgers here, quarter pound of meat in a burger press, press it, set it on, on a piece of wax paper, four, 
and then another piece of wax paper, and then four more, and they fit straight into, you can fit about you know, 12 of them that way, uh, which would be three pounds right into a one-gallon Ziploc bag. You freeze them like that. Those you can take out, put right on the grill, or you can make them fresh. Four, five pounds, four pounds of deer meat, one pound of ground pork. Fatty ground pork like uh, like like pork butt. Okay. If you don't want to do a whole pound of pork, the other way you can do this is then you would do four and a half pounds of pork and get like a half pound of fat back and grind that in together. Mix that up, and when you make uh, five pounds of this, what you want to use is about one teaspoon of pepper and a half teaspoon of salt per pound and mix it like you're missing sausage. Done. That's it. Nothing special. Cook that and make it as a burger any way you like. That is a great way to just have ground meat. If you just want some ground deer meat that you can pull out to use as a hamburger substitute. Again, uh, per pound, a half a teaspoon of pepper I'm sorry, a teaspoon of pepper and a half a teaspoon of salt per pound. That's it. And again, 20% pork uh, or um, per five pounds, a half pound of fat back. If you have pure pork fat, you can, instead of using a whole pound of pork. But I actually have found that it usually costs you less money, and the pork does a little something for it. It really does. So there you go. That's the best beer, beer burgers ever. Um, grill them, fry them, do whatever you want to them. Do them up the way you like them. You know, lettuce and tomato on a big old bun or, you know, uh, as burger steaks or, you know, that's it. Okay, let's move indoors. Okay, I guess you can make the burgers indoors, but let's move indoors. Let's do deer stew. Um, I believe deer stew comes out best when you make it with shanks, though you may not have enough meat on the shanks um, to to make uh, the, 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 the stew in of itself. Okay, but the way that we're going to do this is any meat that we have that's not all that's not still on the bone, that's not on the shanks. And the shanks again, it's like your forearm or your calf. That's where it comes from on the deer. So remember when we parted that deer out, we took that knee joint apart, we took that elbow joint apart, we took that shank, took the foot off, and we have just that piece of bone with the meat on it. And I said it's easier to leave that meat on the bone than to try to cut it off and turn it into burger or what have you. So we take those shanks maybe two, if we have a pair of them, or all four. And four make a decent pot of stew. And some cubed up random other deer meat, whether it's from shoulder cuttings and trimmings or neck trimmings or whatever, anything that, that survived the grinder, cut up in about you know half inch to one inch cubes. And we're going to put that in a bowl, and we're going to coat it with flour, plain old white flour. Don't worry about the carbs, it's not that much. By the time this is all done, there will be more carbs from potatoes if you use those than anything else. But we want the meat nicely coated. In a in a in a big you know kettle, I like to use a cast iron, basically Dutch oven to do this. Uh, put a tablespoon or, or so of lard, enough to have a good coating on the bottom, and brown the meat. And if you're using shanks, you're probably going to put the shanks in and brown them, and take it out, and then put the the cubed meat in and, and bring them out because the bones are going to bring us a whole bunch of flavor here. We could also use those shanks to make a stock that we'll talk about later. But right now we're gonna we're gonna just brown the outside of the meat. We're not trying to cook it. We're just browning it and getting like a nice crusty uh, thing on it. Get the meat out of the pan. Set it to drain. Set it aside. You might have to at this point um, add a little bit more fat. And now you're gonna make a mirepoix. And a mirepoix is a French technique, and it's just equal amounts of peppers, onions, and carrots. And you're going to saute that. That's going to be the base of your stew. If you want to make a really a lot of a lot of people omit this, you know, and just throw a whole bunch of stuff together to make a stew, and it comes out all right. But if you really want to make like this intensely flavored 
Uh, delicious stew. You've now got all this meat uh, trimmings down in there and all. And a, a great addition to this, if you want to, when you're when you're frying this, uh, that you can put in right before you put your meat in, and you take it out and leave it in when you put it back in. Get a get some really thick bacon. You know, maybe like a quarter a pound of really thick bacon. If you can go to a store where they cut bacon themselves and just get them to cut you like a single strip of bacon that's like a half inch thick to, to maybe three quarters inch thick, that'll work really good for this. And uh, so that that's kind of got that flavor from the bacon in there and the, the fat and the lard or the oil and the uh, little bits of flour and sticky pieces of meat that have stuck on. And then we make this mirepoix with the, these equal amounts of, again, celery, carrot, and onion, finely chopped. Now... Your lazy man's way to do this, if you don't want to chop this stuff up yourself, go to the supermarket, and over in the produce section, there'll be a place where they have little cups full of pre-chopped things. You can almost always find chopped diced onions, white onions, use white onions for this, and celery. Then go over to where the carrots are, and you can usually find these in organic carrots. You'll find a thing called matchstick carrots, little thin slivers of carrot. Now you don't have to dice anything. Because by the time this is done cooking, it's all cooked together anyway. So then you take, you go home, you dump your celery in, you dump your onions in, you take your matchstick carrots and fill the little cup that came with either the celery or the onions with matchstick carrots. Three parts equal. Boom. In. Sautéed down. Okay? Once we have that mirepoix kind of going, the onions are translucent, the celery is starting to get soft, the carrots are starting to get soft, Now it's time to go ahead and, and start reincorporating things and make our stew. So now we'll put the meat back in. And I like to use either venison stock or beef stock at this point. Some people will just use the water because you're going to kind of make a stock. Some people will use stock and water depending on how, how much you're making and how much you want to use. But you want to cover everything with water. The meat needs to be completely covered with water at this point. Uh, or liquid, I should say. And we're going to bring that up to a boil till it starts to bubble and then we're going to cut it down to just simmering just barely bubbling not rapid boiling just like like that right okay and we're going to stew that meat at this point i like to get a can or a jar of crushed tomatoes um seeded peeled crushed tomatoes so canned tomatoes And I put that in, and I stir that in. And I like to add, at this point also, uh, a cup of red wine. And my view with many chefs say this too, if you wouldn't drink it, don't cook with it. So that doesn't mean you need to take your you know, $300 bottle of Opus One uh, and put it in there. And obviously not. But, you know, an $8, $9 bottle of wine that you would have a glass with a steak with. So use a good quality red wine, set that in there, and, and, and begin to cook that. The herbs that I add at this point... To cook, I usually put like four bay leaves in there, uh, some fresh thyme, and some salt. And I always salt the taste. Don't use too much salt at this point. You can always add more later. You can't take it back out. And a, a nice helping of black pepper. Um, I also, I, I missed something there because I'm, I'm not doing this from a recipe written down or anything. When I make the mirepoix, right before the meat goes back in, like four or five cloves of garlic. Put the garlic in at the end so it doesn't overcook. A lot of times with garlic, if you put it in with the onions early, you overcook garlic. It scorches. There's a lot of sugars in garlic. It comes out a lot faster than onions. It burns. It gets bitter. So the garlic goes in. We do one last little swoop around with the mirepoix. In goes the meat. In goes the liquid, what have you. We're going to stew the meat for about an hour. After about an hour, 
you're going to pull the shanks out if you view shanks. And you're going to set them aside and put them like in a bowl where they can drain because you want to take all the juice and dump it right back in the pot and, and then pull the shanks out and pull the meat off. Pull the meat off, cut it in pieces, and put it back in the pot. It should come almost completely to the bone, uh, really easily come off. And all of the, there should be some tendon to deal with and all. You just cut that off. But most of the stuff that you would have to get out with your knife when it's raw will just kind of pull apart for you. So I like to use enough meat so that maybe half the meat in the resulting stew comes from the shanks and half comes from cubed meat. So I've got some you know, meat that's kind of stringy. I've got some meat that's in chunks. I've got some meat that's in little pieces. It's kind of all through there. And I'll return that. This one I want to try the meat to. How tender is it? If it's, if it's, if it's almost tender enough, I'm ready to do everything else. If it's not almost, if I'm thinking that's still really, really kind of chewy, then I'll maybe give it another 20, 30 minutes before I do everything else. Now all I'm going to do is have my vegetables. And, and, and classic carrots, celery, potatoes. How much? How much do you want? We're going to cook them until they're done and the stew is done. It's probably going to be thin at this point. There was some flour put in there. So what we'll want to do is we'll want to uh, do, take some flour, uh, a couple tablespoons, and put it in a cup. And get some water and stir it to like a paste and stir it until we get a thin paste. Really, really thin. And then we're gonna, so you gotta make sure all the flour is dissolved. You're gonna get little clumps of flour, like little bad dumplings in your stew. And then stir that into the stew to thicken it to the, to, to your liking. And that's it. It's done. Fan, and do that with lamb. Do that with beef. Do that with any red meat. Same way, do it with squirrels. I used to make what I would call a hunter stew that was half squirrel and half deer. And the squirrel, the way I would do the squirrel, I would almost quarter the squirrel about like I would the deer. And um, I wouldn't even ever bother to pull the meat off the squirrel. So you take your squirrel, and he looks like a little baby skin deer. And you basically cut the, the ribs off because they're useless on a squirrel. And you have the, the kind of, the, then you kind of cut the, like right below the shoulders. And you have like a shoulder connecting the two front arms. You cut that in half. And you cut like the back, so like just like you know, you got the little rump roast with the two little hams on the back, and you cut that in half, so you've got a little um, little backbone piece, two front legs and two back legs, basically is what you end up with the squirrel. And you roll that in the flour, and you maybe take five or six squirrels that you do that with, and they go in bone on, and you cook them all the way through bone on. You never pull them off. And then when you're eating your stew, you just you know pull out your little bit of squirrel and just eat it like a little piece of chicken or a little quail. And you've also got your, your venison in there, so you've got venison and squirrel. It's done the same way. Absolutely fantastic. And it's really a good use of, when you shoot squirrels, you usually look at the squirrel immediately and go, okay, this squirrel was born this year, or this squirrel's two years or older. This is an older squirrel. The older, bigger squirrels are a lot of times kind of tough, and done this way, they come out really, really tender. Be creative. Don't be locked into what I'm telling you today. Now I'm going to tell you what to do with shoulders. You can do this with that lower shoulder roast, or you can do it with the upper shoulder roast. You can also do this with uh, the butt roast. So remember I talked about having the uh, or the rump roast, I guess you'd say, the, the, the piece that's left after you take the two hams off. Any big cut of a, a deer will do well for this. The upper shoulder, again, has a lot of things going on in it. The lower shoulder, the, 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 the rump, uh, and even maybe even half of a back leg or a whole back leg can be done this way, though it's just, to me, it's too high quality of a meat to, to do this with it. But if you want to make a roasted 
piece of deer meat, something analogous to pot roast, you might think that since it's so um, so lean that you can't really do that, and, and you, you would be wrong. Um, it actually makes a fantastic pot roast style thing. The key is low temperature, long time, moist cooking environment, uh, and the best thing in the world, cast iron Dutch oven. Cast iron Dutch oven. And the way we're going to do this, it's going to sound familiar. We take our roast that we're going to make our deer, bone in, bone out, doesn't matter. Salt and pepper on it. We're going to get our skillet, or not our skillet, our, our, our Dutch oven, put it on the stove top to start out. Turn the heat up, get a nice medium to medium warm, medium high, not quite high, but between medium and high heat, so that we're going to get a good sear here. We're going to sprinkle a little bit of flour uh, on that roast to help brown it. We're going to put some lard. Best for this is lard because it can handle the high temperatures. We're going to take that thing and we're going to put it right in there. We're going to, we're going to try to kind of just brown the outside of the roast. We'll keep turning it over till we kind of brown everything that can, you know, they're weird shapes sometimes. You can't get every bit down there, but every larger piece of it that can fit down, we're going to get browned. We're going to take that out. We're going to slice up two white onions. Okay. If you have really big ones, you can use one. We're going to put those in the skillet. We're going to, we're going to go ahead and we're going to turn the heat down a little bit. We're going to cook those until they start to get translucent. We're going to take four or five cloves of garlic, just cut them in half. We're going to throw them in there, uh, and, and we're going to kill the heat at this point. That, that Dutch oven is going to stay nice and hot for us. Um, and then we're going to go ahead and, and deglaze that pan with about a cup of red wine. Okay. We don't want to reduce that very much though at this point. Uh, and we're gonna, then we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna add probably about a cup, maybe a little bit less of beef stock. We want to make sure there's some moisture in the bottom, but we don't want this thing braising. We don't want it boiling or, or cooking like a crock pot. We want a thin layer of moisture down there. And then what we can do to kind of hold that meat up out of that moisture a little bit, uh, and eventually go ahead and let it come back down, we'll take like four stalks of celery and lay them in there. Like a cross, like a, like a, like you're like you're like you're laying wood down like a pallet, okay. And then get yourself like uh, th three carrots and cut them in half and lay them cross hatch. So you've got almost like a tic tac toe board, uh, but with with four rows instead of three, made out of celery and carrot in the bottom, okay. And then take another onion or half an onion and cut it in slices and kind of lay that in there. And then set your meat on top of that bed of vegetables. So you've got this liquid below and the meat kind of sitting above. Put the lid on your um, your Dutch oven. Obviously, you need a small enough roaster, a big enough Dutch oven to make this work. And then cook that for about four hours at 225 degrees. Okay? And if it's not quite as tender as you want, check on it, and you can just leave it in there a little bit longer. The... <laughs> The, the, the thing you can then add toward the end is go ahead and parboil some potatoes. So cut potatoes into like fourths and boil them for like, I don't know, seven, eight minutes till you can take a, a steak knife, a pointed steak knife, and push them in there and go, that's almost done, but I wouldn't eat it yet. That's kind of the, the place that you want them. And right toward the end when your meat's almost done, take it out. And, and layer the potatoes around the meat and, and, and down into where the juices are, and then put it back in and let it finish up that way. You'll smack your mama. I promise you, you will. You, you will not believe what that tastes like. 
um, it will not dry out like that. It can't. It's in such a moist, humid environment at such a low temperature, it's not going to dry out. And if you've cooked it on the bone, if you did it right, when you're done, you can reach in there and grab that bone and yank it, and the meat will fall off, and the bone will look like the dog would look at you like, really, that's what I get? That, that's what it should look like. And the, the juice in the bottom. And this is another place where you might want to go ahead and put some big old thick chunks of bacon in that pan. And you could also, if you wanted to, make a mirepoix. You don't really have to because you're basically roasting a mirepoix. you got the onion, you got the celery, you got the carrot. So this is fantastic. If you wanted some carrot and celery to go with it, then cut up some bigger pieces and add them about the time you would your potatoes. And then just cook those till they're soft. And then you have that to the side. You've got your basically your pot roast deer, and you've got your juice from the bottom. But the potato, like again, I know I don't eat a lot of potatoes, but I want you to think about this from a carb standpoint. A potato has based on size, unless you're talking about a giant, you know, like Jason's Deli potato, but a regular potato, and I, you know, russet potato, has between 30 to 37 calories in it, or carbohydrates in it. I'm sorry. If you keep your carbohydrates down around 18, you're good. Most of what's in there has very little to any carbohydrate other than maybe the carrot. If you eat the equivalent of half a potato and you have that starchy juiciness to suck that juice up and it just adds so much to the meal, you're looking at you know, 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrate. Protein power phase two uh, for a low-carbohydrate diet says that you should be around 18 carbohydrate grams per meal. It's not that much. And it's not something you're going to do every day. So this is a place to bring in potatoes. Another thing that works really good with this, though, that's low-carb, uh, if you like the flavor, is, is turnips. You could substitute those for the potatoes there. Um, let's talk about making a Tide roast. This is really, really easy to do. This is a great idea to do with, like, so you've taken your, your loins all the way up to, like, the shoulder area, and you've got this neck roast. And what most people do with that neck roast, because there's a lot of stuff going on there, is they just cut it up and grind it and use it part of their burger. And there's nothing wrong with that if you need burger or sausage meat. But another great thing to do with it is go out and buy yourself a piece of pork butt. Boneless is best for this unless you just want the bone for making stock because you're going to cut it up anyway. And slice up your, your, your neck roast into pretty large pieces about, I don't know, like... You know, as, as big as you can without being too big, like sticks almost kind of shaped. Long, uh, inch thick, couple inches long, that type of thing. And cut your pork up about the same way. Have enough pork that if you get, let's say, two pounds of, uh, so you want about a third pork in this. So if you got two pounds of deer meat, you want like one pound of pork. And get some uh, roast netting. You can also tie this with string. But the pieces are kind of odd shaped, so instead of tying it with, with, with a, like a, a, a cotton butcher string, they make these nettings that you can buy. And you just kind of fill that net, and you tie both ends up with your, your string. And then you can make that exactly the way that I told you to make the, the, the roasted shoulder or the roasted uh, uh, rump roast. That works fantastic. Another thing that tastes fantastic, though, is you take that tide roast, you make yourself up a good mop, which I'm not going to get in today, but something to keep it moist, right? And, and smoke that. Smoke that like on a side box smoker, like you were smoking like a brisket or a pork shoulder. Because all that pork fat's in there with it, it's not going to dry out. Because you're at a low temperature, it's not going to dry out. Because you're mopping it, and you're keeping a moist environment, you're not going to dry it out. If you have one of the little uh, electric smokers like I do, let's say a little refrigerator, it's got a little side thing, little 
pucks of uh, wood, wood pressed wood pucks go in there. Those are great for smoking that. I came up with that because when I first started doing a lot of smoking meats, I just went out to the store to buy whatever I could find, and I found a turkey roast. It was like half dark meat, half white meat turkey in one of these net bags. And I, I said, I'll throw I mean, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff. I might as well throw that in the smoker, too. And it was fantastic. You sliced it, and it was just beautiful. And I thought, well, why not do it with venison? It's, it's very, very good doing that as well. Uh, dear Chili, I'm not going to go on my chili recipe because we're at like an hour and a half right now, and I'm going to go too long. But um, sometime this week, I'll put out my chili recipe, and you just substitute deer meat with it. But deer chili is fantastic, and the best thing to do is use the burger recipe for your chilies or for your spaghettis or anything, which, again, is four pounds of deer meat, you know, one pound of pork, salt and pepper. That's and, and just have that made up in like one pound packages, and you can use that for anything you would use hamburgers for. Tacos, yeah, you can do tacos with deer, and it's really good. And I'm going to give you two ways to do it. One is make tacos the way you normally do with ground meat using the deer burger recipe. I'll leave that to you. But here's another way to do it. Take random trimmings of deer meat that normally you would say, I'm going to, I'm going to put this into the grinder. Now you would think this is going to be tough, but it's not going to be tough by the time you're done with it because I'm going to tell you what to do. Trim it of the tallow and, and sinew and silver sheen and cut it into about one quarter inch cubes like we were talking about before, um, for making uh, the sausage, the andouille sausage. So small cubes of meat. They can be a little bit bigger for this, though, maybe half-inch cubes. Okay? Salt, pepper, cumin, chili powder. Give them a nice coating of that. Cast iron skillet. And use either lard or some bacon, some bacon end pieces or whatever, and get yourself a nice... Uh, amount of lard or oil or fat in there to, to brown this stuff in. Make sure that you kind of shake off the excess so it doesn't get all sticky and gummy on you. And brown that in a skillet. Because they're small pieces of meat, they won't be tough. You, you, I mean, it's it, it's that simple. You want meat to not be tough, put it in smaller pieces. If you want it to really tenderize, you can make almost like a piccata. They call it beef piccata in Mexico where you take your small pieces of meat, set it down on your... Um, on your, your uh, what do you call it, your, uh, <laughs> your your cutting board. Take the backside of your knife and kind of pound it, kind of flatten it out, or put it in a plastic bag and take a like a jar and, and pound it with a jar or a, a, a meat mallet or whatever. Just kind of, don't, don't do it like you're doing chicken fried steak. Just kind of make it at least uh, a third to a half bigger than it, it started out. So it's just mashed down a little bit. That way it'll take the seasonings up more. Absolutely fantastic. And then do tacos however you like with it. And you'd be surprised at how good that is. You, you, you really would. Um, let's talk about some other stuff we can do. Let's talk about breakfast. So take the meat and prepare it just the way that I said. So you've, you've pounded it down a little bit. Uh, you've got it all cubed up. And then in your skillet, either some lard or some bacon. Bacon's great for this because you get some, you know, chop your bacon into like two-inch long pieces so that it's part of your breakfast taco, this egg and, uh, and, and potato breakfast taco we're going to make. And uh, so we get our, our, our bacon rendered out nicely. In goes our seasoned, uh, before we put the, the meat in, I'm sorry, before that goes in, cubed potatoes. And we're going to season those potatoes once they go in with a little, just a sprinkling of chili powder, salt, and pepper. 
and then our seasoned meat's going to go in there once the potatoes are starting to brown because the meat doesn't need to cook long at all. Remember, this meat needs to be dry. This meat needs to have sat in the refrigerator on a paper towel and dried out before we do this. So when we put that meat in there, we don't want it to turn into a bunch of like venison water. We want this to, to, to crisp up. And then we're going to put one or two eggs, depending on how much we make. We're just going to crack them in there. Turn the heat down when you do scrambled eggs. Turn the heat down. Take a little longer to get there. You'll get a much nicer, fluffier egg. Scramble the eggs in to bind everything together. And uh, once we get that kind of, uh, the eggs starting to kind of congeal and come together, go ahead and kind of force it into like a pancake shape. Push it down a little bit, almost like we're making a hash. Turn the heat up a little bit and kind of crust the bottom. And then, you know, flip in one or two flips so that you get the other side crusted up a little bit. And then chop that with your spatula. Just kind of chomp it up. And then do breakfast tacos with that. Fantastic. How about sausage and sweet potato hash with eggs or without eggs? And two options if you do it with eggs. So this is similar to what we just did, only we're not going to make a taco out of it. You could do this with regular potatoes as well, but this is awesome with sweet potatoes. So we take the sausage that we made, the Italian or breakfast sausage, the breakfast version without the Italian get up, as I called it, is really great for this. Whether it's deer, whether it's pork, whether it's duck, doesn't matter. We take that sausage. We you know, put a little bit of uh, fat in our skillet. We brown that sausage. We take the sausage out, set it out to drain. We take our potatoes. Now, our potatoes will come out much better if we parboil them first. About five minutes in boiling water, take them out, hit them with cold water to cool them down, and then dice them up. You don't have to do that, especially if you're in a hurry, but it'll come out a lot better for you and that's whether you're using sweet or regular potatoes. Dice your potatoes up. I use about one big sweet potato to make this, because I don't make too much of this at once. You want to make a lot of it, use two big sweet potatoes. I don't peel sweet potatoes. You can. It's up to you. I, I find their peels to be actually almost non-noticeable once they're done. So you dice up your sweet potatoes. And again, parboiling will make dicing sweet potatoes a lot easier. Then you throw your sweet potatoes, your par-cooked sweet potatoes, into the fat remains left over, add a little if you need to, and start to cook your potatoes and get them kind of start to get a little bit crusty. Okay? Put your, um, your, your, your sausage, your deer sausage, your other sausage back in, and then you're going to, like I said, you, now you're going to take your spatula and you're going to, on this, you're going to push. You want to mash those potatoes, not like mashed potatoes, but like to where they're crushed, like they're halfway to pulp, but they're not pulp. So you just push down until they give. So if it's an inch cube potato, when you're done pushing, it's a half inch thick and, and pushed out the side. That's going to make some of the, the sugars and all come out and start to get crusty. Okay. And we're going to, we're going to take that and we're going to cook that and we're going to flip it once so that we get it crusty on both sides. And that's your basic sweet potato sausage hash. And it's fantastic. Now, there's two ways we can do this with eggs. One is before we mash it and it gets all crusty, we can go ahead and start to kind of mash the potatoes and immediately take a couple, couple, three eggs that are whipped up, and we can dump that in there. We can blend it all together like we're making a, a, a scramble. And we can even take that off the top of the skillet, and we can finish that in the oven if we want to so that it comes out nice and crusty on the bottom. And then the, 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 the trick here, if you really want to, open the oven, kick the broiler on just for a couple seconds across the top without flipping it. Okay, here's another way to do it. Take it, kind of push it all out so it's going to get crusty. Make little depressions in it, okay, uh, like little nests. 
take three or four eggs, crack them, and leave the yolks intact, and put them in there like you're making eggs sunny side up. Okay? Cover the pan and poach the eggs with the moisture that's coming up out of the hash until the yolks are done to your likeness. Don't cook them all the way through. This is where you want a little bit of a runny yolk. Absolutely fantastic. Now, this sounds complicated, but this doesn't have to take long. Let's say you're making dinner. You're going to boil some water anyway uh, for something else. You're going you're gonna to parboil some potatoes for dinner. Throw a couple sweet potatoes in with the potatoes. It doesn't matter. They're not going to get to know each other too much. Okay? Um, take your sweet potatoes and stick them in the refrigerator. They're parboiled for tomorrow. You can make with the, with the beautiful one with the, the sunny side up eggs on it in, in 25 minutes in the morning. If you have a job you have to get to, you get up 20 minutes earlier, you could eat like that before you leave. You can feed your family like that before you go to work. This doesn't, the sausage can already be cooked. Right? The next time you're making some sausage, cook a little bit of extra, put it in a Ziploc bag and freeze it. You can add peppers and onions to that. It's fantastic. You can add a little bit of garlic. Do what you will with it. But those are some breakfast options. Let's talk about a few more things before we wrap up today. Basic deer stock. So it's a bone stock with deer bones. So the best, the best advice I can give you, though, when you're making any kind of a bone stock, including deer stock, is always take your bones and always try you know, leave a little bit of meat on them and, and what have you, a little bit of stuff here and there. Put it in the oven at about 350 degrees for 30 to 45 minutes to an hour, depending on what it takes, for them to get browned and then make your, your stock. And then basically it's, it, it, it's boiling the bones very slowly. And a stock pot's pretty good for this. Or, I'm sorry, a, a crock pot's pretty good for this. Bones... Put it in there, set it on meat, you know, the, the, the low heat, high until it gets to where it's bubbling, and then kick it down to low and leave it sit for hours until those bones are almost ready to, like, get soft a little bit. And, and then you have a basic bone stock. And I, I won't go into that. If you want to know how to make bone stock, just go to the site and put bone stock in, and you'll, you, you can just adapt that to deer bones. But I think making stock is a great idea. It lets us do some really simple things, too. How about vegetable deer soup? I've never heard of vegetable deer soup. Well, vegetable beef, it's the same thing. So we take our stock, we take some smaller cubes, stuff that will fit on a spoon, uh, deer meat. Again, it can be random trimmings and stuff. That's you know where a lot of this stuff comes from. We add that to our stock. We heat that up. We, we cut up carrots and celery to spoon-sized pieces, and we cook that as a soup. Now we can do anything we want with that soup. Okay, We can make that soup. We can make stock and that soup at the same time. So when we're making the stock, we just go ahead, clean off the bones, take the random scraps and put that in there, and instead of making a pure stock, we have basically a stock with meat. We can can that and do whatever we want when we take that out. We just have some meat in with this, the stock. Or we can go ahead and add the celery and carrots and can that. Now we have the basic deer vegetable soup. Now there's a lot of things we can do with it that we wouldn't want to can because it will really overcook. But if we want to go ahead and eat it right away or we've taken it out and we've got just basically the broth and the, the carrots and the celery and the meat, now we can put in some whole kernel corn, just a can of corn, small can. Sweet, really nice, fresh peas. And then right at the end, cube zucchini. Fantastic. If you want it to be a little bit more tomato-y, add a little bit of tomato paste. Or add you know a, a small can of crushed tomatoes to that. If you want something that's in there as a starch, a couple tablespoons full of minute rice to a pint. Eight, five minutes and the rice is cooked. Don't put it in the can when you, if you're going to can it. You know, you don't put it in the jar and, and then try to can it because the rice will explode in there. 
But you could take the canned soup out, just a couple tablespoons of rice. Uh, you can do a, a, a vegetable barley deer soup if you want to. I don't really like to do the barley thing, but if you know how to make barley, you just add that when at the appropriate time. Again, that's not something you would can. But that is, is fantastic, and that can be done in a crock pot. right? So we take a crock pot, a bunch of cubed up deer meat, maybe a bunch of cubed up other random meats, the leftovers, and throw that in there. Um, thyme and rosemary are great seasonings for a soup like that. Cover it with stock and water, salt and pepper to taste, a little bit of garlic, and add vegetables at the appropriate time. Some vegetables you don't want to overcook. Zucchini at the end, corn toward the end. A little bit of beans is good in there too. Not a bean soup, just, you know, when you, out of your bowl, there might be five or six beans. A lot of this paleo stuff, I'm, you know, 80% of the paleo, 90% of the time is the way I look at it. And, and those beans don't take me off my 80%. Because they're just a small amount. And it's these different flavors and characteristics come together. And that's, a, I'm not going to eat that today. It's 105 degrees. But in the wintertime, are you kidding me? Fantastic. How about deer lasagna? Just make the Italian sausage using the deer meat with the either Keith's basic recipe or Italianed up as I call it a little bit more, and make make your your version of lasagna using deer sausage. Your family will never know. They'll never know. They'll never know, especially if you use Jack's. Uh, whatever. So if you do that sausage, they'll never know. But if you want to do something like spaghetti, and you do spaghetti with meat, so you just do ground beef with spaghetti sauce and spaghetti. If you use my four pounds of deer meat to one pound of pork, salt and pepper mixed burger, your family will never know. They will never know. They'll never know. They'll know something's different if you don't add the pork. When you put that pork in there and the, the fat binds that meat together, it's on, man. Especially when you're cooking things like spaghettis and chilies and all. Um, how about this one? Deer heart with a red wine reduction in mushrooms. This is amazing served over like a, a wild rice blend. So I won't get into how to do that, but you make a wild rice blend or like uh, a wild rice with like almond slivers on it. So that's already on your plate, and then this is what you plate onto it. So the way you do this, you take your deer heart, you cut it into strips. You cut all your little ventricles and nastiness out of there. You get your skillet, and you, uh, you, you use lard in the skillet, nice high temperature, or peanut oil or something that can handle the high temperatures. You coat your uh, heart with salt, pepper, and garlic powder. Um, and you get your, 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 your pan nice and hot. Uh, a few little pieces of bacon in there are nice as well. I don't always have time to do that, but that's nice. Into the heart goes. You, you cook the heart at a high temperature quick, and you don't cook it all the way through. You want it kind of browned on the outside, and then it, as soon as you get to where the heart looks like it's almost ready to be eaten, but not quite yet, and you get better at this as you go. So remember, you can always cook it longer. You can never put it back. So sooner rather than later, you take a bottle of red wine, you use enough red wine to deglaze your your uh, your pan. So you get like an, a, a, about a quarter inch deep of, of wine in the bottom of the pan. And uh, you throw a handful of mushrooms in there. Uh, it's really nice if you, I usually, you know, I leave a lot of things out when I do this because if I'm doing that, there's going to be onions and garlic in there uh, somewhere along the way based on what I'm cooking. So onions and garlic are part of this too. Uh, usually I'll, I'll start the pan Onions, get the onions reduced, steak and garlic, go, the heart and the garlic go in at the same time so we don't overcook the garlic, red wine to deglaze, mushrooms going at that point, and then we're just going to slowly simmer that uh, until the red wine is reduced by about half, uh, and the mushrooms will be nicely cooked at that point, 
and then we take the heart and we put it right on top, a couple pieces of the heart right on top of the uh, wild rice, uh, a couple spoons of the mushrooms, and some of that sauce on top of that. Blow you away. Blow, and you don't have to do the rice. I'm just saying if you want to kind of put this together in a meal and blow somebody away with it, we're like, I won't eat deer heart. We'll eat that. Well, that's good. Well, that's deer heart. I mean, and the because the, the the wild rice blend, you know, wild rice is probably better for you than white rice. So you got like a wild rice with like uh, like some quinoa and uh, like from brown rice, and it's just a little bit. You're talking about two two three tablespoons of rice to go along with this dish, and then maybe a big side of vegetables or something, and then this deer heart and the mushrooms. And oh my god, what kind of mushrooms? Whatever you want. Shiitakes are great for this. Mataki's beautiful for this. Mataki hen of the woods. Um, just plain old button mushrooms. Um, portobello's sliced kind of thin because you're not going to be in there that long and adjust and adapt in the end remember this all this is is red meat deer meat's just red meat this is a problem we, we think about oh it's venison we have to do something different everything I gave you today lamb, beef, pork works with it it's just cooking just don't overcook it because it's lean that's it and take good care of it like I told you in the last episode you know don't get You know, stuff from the bladder or the colon on the meat. Don't get stuff from the glands on the meat. You know, don't let it sit out in the heat. Get the entrails out of it, you know, pretty quick. Don't have it sitting there bloated. Uh, let the meat hang. Don't overcook it. Right? See, so the, the, the thing with venison is there's two ways to screw it up. And one is you, you probably have to handle it yourself if you're doing your own butchering or you're relying on a butcher to be a good butcher. Most butchers are good butchers, but not all, right? Um, if, it, if the person that does deer processing also does you know, pork and beef and all, you, you're really in good shape. You guys know what they're doing. The guys that just do near meat may or may not know what they're doing. May or may not. I'm not saying anything bad. I'm just saying, you know. Um, so you have this potential to mess the meat up during the handling phase. And then you also have this potential to mess the meat up in, like, the refrigerator stage. Again, Don't put meat in water. Don't keep meat sealed in plastic unless it's frozen. Or for a day at the most. I'm going to tell you again, when you bring that steak home from the supermarket, if you're not cooking it today or tomorrow at the, at the earliest, get it out of the plastic or get it in the freezer. Rebag it and get it in the freezer. Do not leave meat. It, it, try this if you, if you doubt me at all. I want you to try an experiment for me. A chicken will show it to you really fast, but... I hate to do this to any piece of meat, but just so you'll believe me. Go to the store, buy two identical cuts of meat, okay? Bring it home, stick it in your refrigerator. Let us and Make sure that the, the, the sell-by date on the packaging is at least four days away. So that four days from now, that meat should be just as good as it is right now, according to the label, okay? When you get home, immediately, and you let it for four days like this, it'll be really nicely aged. Put that meat on a paper towel, put another piece of paper towel over it, and flip it every day. And in four days, that meat will be bright red. It will have this kind of crusty thing going on. You'll be like, I don't know about this, but if you cook that piece of meat, that meat will be fantastic. But smell it. It will have almost no odor whatsoever. It will be fine. You will not, when you smell it, you won't be like, I don't know about this. Cut open that plastic package. And sniff that piece of meat, then this is what you're going to do. You're going to put it in some kind of a bag, wrap it up, cry, stick it in the freezer, and make a note that on garbage day to remember that's in the freezer to take it out and throw it away. 
because you're not going to want to eat it. When you when you realize the difference, you're going to realize something and feel it. It'll be sticky and not in the way that we talked about where we're making a crust or whatever. It'll be like this sticky, weird, fat, nasty, like, whoa, what's wrong there? If you've ever had meat and it's been in the, in the refrigerator for a while and you cook it, it just won't cook right, that's what's wrong. It's When you age meat and you dry age meat in the refrigerator, it ages aerobically. Okay, It's got a lot of oxygen. It's got some lactic acid going on there. It's almost got some level of a ferment going on. It's, it's having excess moisture leached away from it. It's slowly curing. It's almost like you're making a biltong or pickling it or uh, doing a jerky, but just really, really slow. This can't go on forever without very tight controls, but two, three, four days, this is beautiful. Okay? When that meat sits in that plastic, all the moisture is just held into the meat. and it, it has that diaper to wick away the blood, but it just gets oversaturated, and then the fat starts kind of coming out, and then it goes rancid. It goes rancid because there's no air. It's, it's, because whatever's in there that can use oxygen uses up the oxygen, and then you go from aerobic to anaerobic. Now, you, you might be thinking, well, that's okay, because obviously when we, we stick something under water and we do like fermented foods that we're in a, an, an anaerobic state, but we're not. We're in a, in a highly, there's a lot of oxygen in water. And we're also in a, sal a salinity when we do fermented foods that only lets the lactobacillus work. That piece of steak sitting in that piece of plastic at you know, 38 degrees or whatever it is, is inhibiting the growth of anaerobic bacteria, but not really. It's just they're very slow. Four days is enough for them to start to get kind of a start on what they're doing. So if you doubt me, try it. If you don't doubt me, just don't do it anymore. You know, and, and again, make sure when you freeze meat, it's well packaged. When you take it out, defrost it, get it out of the packaging, get it in the refrigerator for a day. Start doing this with your steaks. Your, your pork chops, everything from the store. When you take it out of the freezer, get it defrosted in the fridge, get it out of the packaging, give it a day after it's defrosted in the fridge before you cook it. It'll cook so much better. Oh my God, it will cook so much better. It won't cook that gray color. It'll cook like meat's supposed to cook. Hopefully this helps you again. I know, not the rough and tough survival topic, but remember how we got the deer. We got it with a stick with a sharp point, fired by a string. That's pretty survival. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Nobody up there cares They're living for today Revolution.